and I think the biggest moment is actually, you know, visually it maybe doesn't show much, but that that deep trust when she comes out of the den, and you know that animal um, trusts you with its life and knows that you're not going to harm it, and you know, and you're swimming beside her, and she's hunting uh, almost as if you're not there, and sometimes using you as a foil. Then you kind of know, okay, this is um, it's the most incredible feeling. Hey there, thanks for joining for another episode of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation, which celebrates the impactful work being done around the globe and shares the stories of the inspiring individuals who are behind it. My name's Aaron, and I'm the host of Impact in the 21st Century. In this series, we're focusing on the people working to protect our natural world, innovate greener technologies, and ensure that no one's left behind in the process. In each episode, I'll be speaking with an impactful author, founder, activist, or changemaker about the actions they're taking in this space. And in doing so, I also aim to tease out what we can all be doing to lead more impactful lives. But before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about something I'm deeply passionate about, Simbi Foundation a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education in refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning material, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to entire schools and communities. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to visit simbifoundation.org. And if you'd like to support Simbi Foundation and our podcast, we welcome you to follow us and leave us a rating to help more people discover the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Craig Foster, a naturalist, co-founder of the Sea Change Project, and the visionary mind and filmmaker behind the incredible 2020 documentary, My Octopus Teacher. And Craig, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you doing and where are you joining from? Uh, wonderful to speak with you. I've been wanting to speak with you for a while. So I know a lot of our interests cross paths. So I'm from, I'm speaking in the little attic, uh, looking over the Great African Sea Forest. And this is the little attic where um, Pippa and I started editing Marktopus Teacher many, many years ago. And we spent a lot of long hours here. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's right on the tip of Africa. We're right on the right near the, the very tip of the southwesterly tip of Africa. Okay. And have you been in the ocean today? I have. I have every day, every day for now over 10 years. Uh, um, so it was yeah nice, uh, cold and rainy. So it's coming to winter now. So we went uh, this morning and did a nice hard swim. Um, beautiful, uh, just out there, you know, nobody in sight. So it was a, a very busy day. So it was a bit short. Mm -hmm. But um, tomorrow I'm going the whole day, entire day tracking. Uh, on land on the on the coast and in in the kelp forest the entire day dedicated wow and you know 10 years of getting in the ocean every day does, does it get easier or do you find it it still requires a little bit of that initial uh what am i doing and then you kind of just <laughs> you often ask that question what the hell are you doing but you only ask that question before yeah. Never after being in the water do you ever question. That's what's so interesting. Before, when it's freezing and there's a freezing wind and massive swells, you think, what the hell are you doing sometimes? 
Um, but now I just, I mean, I just, I don't think about it too much. It's, I don't have that kind of push pull so much. I just go, I know I go and I feel better. And that always afterwards, like we say, we never, ever regret a diet. It's just right. never happened. Um, so it's a kind of daily practice. And uh, if the, the conditions are very good, we might go, you know, a few times. Uh, started to night dive as well now. So yeah, it's, awesome. it's just a, it's a great, great passion that I'm hoping to keep up, you know, for my whole life. It is, Aaron, it is harder if one's not slept well or one's stressed. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to thermoregulate. So then the cold impacts one harder. If, if one slept well and feeling strong, it's much, much easier. You can take on, take on a lot. But if you don't feel strong, that's when it becomes difficult. Understood. And w- when you're getting into this water, are you... Are you, do you have a practice of exhaling as you're going in, or do you, do you have any particular practice to not have it, you know, take your breath away? Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, that taking the breath away only happens in the first, say, six months of going every day. That oh. doesn't happen now. Um, the body gets so used to that cold shock. And I also train uh, in an ice box at zero degrees. Um, so, the, the your body just gets so used to it. In fact, it craves the cold. It mm. looks forward to it, especially if one's feeling good. Um, and if one's feeling bad, then you you want it anyway because it makes you feel better. Um, but no, no, you don't get that uh, take the breath away at all. The body actually doesn't have a, a great uh, much of a reaction. It's just kind of used to it. It knows it, and it doesn't go into fight or flight. It's relaxed, and that's mm. what's important. Um, so that the body, uh, the, 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 like the inner part of the, the being knows everything's fine. Right. Cause I've actually been for the, for the last few months, cold water swimming every morning. Right. Um, in, in Vancouver, but mm. I, I'm still very much in that, that breath taking away phase. So right. what's the temperature of the water? I think we're at 12 degrees Celsius. Okay. That's a that'll that'll wake you up. Um, it does, but you feel amazing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, so Craig, I understand that the room that you're sitting in right now is the room that you started actually editing, my octopus teacher. And I also understand that it was a a set of fairly miraculous events that took it from your attic to to Netflix. What happened? Oh, it was a long. It's a long, long and involved story. Um, I mean, well, the what, whole, what the prem- notes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, we, I didn't set out to make a film in the first place. I was setting out to learn tracking, to learn this environment and just using my camera. And then, you know, had this, uh, incredible relationship and saw so many interesting things and it uh, started fiddling with the edit and developed the story. And in fact, we, then I linked up with my old friend that I'd done the great dance with, which you might have seen years ago, um, Ellen Vindermuth, and then their company went to Netflix, and they actually turned the film down completely. Um, and then we did some more work and somehow managed to get back to them, and the the, um, the commissioning editor had just been changed. The, the last person left, and it was just this miracle of the person seeing it at the right time on an aeroplane with their child next to him was interested in octopus, and the next minute they, you know, were, were taking it on. So it was a, it was a, every, the whole thing has been a, a series of little miracles. It's beautiful to hear. 
there's so much about the story that inspires so much hope from, you know, just being open to a, to a new opportunity or being open to just being curious and, and seeing something that fascinates you and the trajectory that that can set your life on. And uh, I was so deeply inspired researching you and, and understanding the, the path that took place to, to allow all of us to, to watch the film. And I guess a question I have is, when watching My Octopus Teacher, there's a few moments that really stand out to me. And to be honest, the entire movie just pulls you right in. But, you know, the first time she touches you, your first ride to the surface together, um, or just watching her interact with with the shark by literally riding its back, um, and, and so many other moments. And I'm wondering, was there any one particular moment where you thought, my God, I've got to make a film? Funny enough, not at the time. It's the last thing you're thinking about. Um, you know, you, you're in that space with that animal and the whole rest of the world kind of doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's only afterwards, um, you know, that you think um, there's something uh, extraordinary here. And I think the biggest moment is actually, you know, visually it maybe doesn't show much, but that, that deep trust when she comes out of the den and you know that animal um, trusts you with its life and knows that you're not going to harm it. And, you know, and you're swimming beside her and she's hunting uh, almost as if you're not there and sometimes using you as a foil. Then you kind of know, okay, this is, um, it's the most incredible feeling um, to, to be witness to an, a wild animal doing that and to you feel a little bit inside her world. Um, and that's a sense of okay. Now it's more a feeling of it's so powerful and so uplifting that you naturally want to share it. I think our, I mean, you know quite a lot about you know storytelling and our origins, and it's such a. I think every human has this desire to tell stories, especially if they um, impact one a lot, and. You know, those ancient fireside stories are mostly about animal encounters. So it's just a natural thing to want to share it. Uh, and you normally share it in, a, in the group of 30 people, as you know. Now you're sharing it on a platform like Netflix with a couple hundred million people. That's another story. And that's like very frightening for the psyche as well. That's not what we uh, designed to experience. Yeah, you're spot on. Well, actually, on that note, I was, um, I was living in Camp Spey. And which, which is in Cape Town. And I was swimming at this tidal pool daily. And the one day I go and there are so many people, it is just overcrowded. And there's this lovely older lady um, sitting next to me on the beach. And, and I say to her, you know, is it, is it usually this full? And she says, no, but everyone went out and watched my octopus teacher. And the movie has inspired all the Cape Townians to to become swimmers and that was the first time that it hit me the the movement that that this film created above and beyond preservation and and wildlife you've you've inspired behavioral change in people and so what, what you're talking about of you know reaching hundreds of millions on netflix on one hand i think it's an amazing opportunity but there's a moral obligation i think to to do something meaningful when you when you have that kind of reach yeah, I mean, the funny thing, like, so Camps Bay, you know, I grew up in Buckhoven, which is a stone's throw away mm-hmm. from there. So I know that that 
uh, what you, that place you're talking about intimately, because that's where I grew up as a child. There were far, far, far fewer people then. It was not a popular place to live at all. Nobody really wanted to live by the sea, believe it or not, in those days. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, we were absolutely shocked at the reaction. I mean, we thought nobody was going to watch this film, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, you, you're not prepared for the reach. For years, we've done films as National Geographic or Animal Planet, and it goes out on the weekend. Um, a month later, nobody's heard of it. But this is, it's a totally different story these days. And it's, I mean, they're, they're incredible positives, um, you know, like that sort of, you know, connecting people to nature, which is very inspiring. Mm. But also the, 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 when you go out to that number of people, it's also, um, it's difficult to deal with the, the kickback from that, you know, uh, for a year, you don't know if you're coming or going and you don't sleep much. And it's, it's, it's quite difficult actually. Um, nobody prepares you for the, um, you know, all, all the feedback and all the, the, the wants and desires. And uh, do you feel like you were able to successfully manage that that feedback and kickback? <laughs> no, not really. No. <laughs> At least you're smiling about it. <laughs> no, initially it's totally overwhelming. I mean, just remember, my I, I've sort of tried to get to the end of the planet, right to the end of Africa here. Now I'm, I'm much more remote than and, and trying to get, um, you know, deeply reconnected with nature, learn tracking over years. And then, um, you know, you've got just thousands and thousands and thousands of people wanting to interact on cell phones and computers and meetings, which is the opposite of of being wild uh, and and connecting with nature so it's a very strange position to be in but at the same time you're right you feel the responsibility to try and do something about this incredible place and this world that we you know struggling with so much with climate change and so on so it's a you you, you feel like you're being torn apart um because your your deep love is is nature and you know that that's your calling and those stories from deep nature and that connection is going to help uh, inspire people. But you're being pulled in the opposite direction because if you do uh, five Zoom calls a day, there's no way you can track. Even if you do two or three, like there's no tracking to be done on that day. It 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 messes too much with your brain. Uh, so you see the the the, the dilemma. <laughs> I do, <laughs> and and you've got uh, you've got you know thousands of people and um, needing um, replies and help and uh, all this kind of thing. So it's it's tricky, but you get used to that after a while, and and thank goodness it calms down uh, as well. But the first year after that is pretty pretty tough uh, to deal with, uh, and I'm not a a person who, who actually likes a lot of publicity and that kind of thing. Um, so it was yeah it was. It was it was pretty difficult, but then you get the amazing positive sides. You know, you get to meet Jane Goodall. I get to meet people like you and have amazing conversations. So there's, there's an amazing upside as well, but it's just, I'm just being honest. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a strange, um, strange and interesting ride. You, you're not the first person I've heard say that, you know, you, you become well-known because you're so deeply passionate and focused about one area. And you're thriving in this little kind of eco chamber, but then people find out about you because you thrive and you've done well, and then they pull you away. 
and I think it's yeah, just the unfortunate outcome of of becoming an overnight success, so to speak. And we all know that it takes what ten years to become an overnight success plus. And and what I mean by that and is a lot of people when I was researching you and when the team were were looking into you, there's a lot of people that think that here's a guy who discovered an octopus started filming it and made a netflix original and i don't think they realize how many years you have been honing this craft of animal tracking and storytelling um the way that you have and i wonder do you think if you hadn't had all those years of experience and if you hadn't filmed as many docs as you have and 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 done as much animal tracking do you think that you would have ever been able to create this kind of a film that's a very interesting question. I don't think anybody's asked because then most of them, do, as you say, just think it's a, a one-year story. But it's as you say. I mean, this, the, the tracking in the Kalahari began you know, more than twenty years ago. Mm. Um, I certainly wouldn't have been the same film. And you, and of course, you know, we've got an incredible team doing the film. I'm just, I'm just a cog in the wheel of this incredible team. But I think it would be, be hard um without that certainly without my experience in the kalahari with the sound trackers uh, i don't think i would have you know come up with that idea to track underwater uh, in the first place um I, I don't think many of the things wouldn't have fallen into place so you know you, you're definitely drawing a lot it would be a diff uh, maybe a completely different piece or you know, a, a different story um you may not have found so her again <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so yeah, I think it, uh, that all all plays into it. You know, that your childhood. I grew up, you know, right next to the ocean, and that you know um, instilled a, a real passion for it. All my early days were on the shore from you know very 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 young. So that all also played a big role. Yeah, I heard you talking about having a bungalow on the beach or close to it and essentially that being right in the water zone hey eh? it was crazy in a, in those days uh there weren't that many rules um my dad bought this little wooden bungalow and the whole um lower uh, part of the um little bungalow was actually below the high water mark Jeez. so um when those big atlantic storms uh, used to come in it literally used to smash the doors down and they, they, we had to put these these wooden boards on the windows because it just break the windows on every storm um sometimes there was a little double story and the kelp used to be thrown on top of the roof you know the you come out in the morning and the entire front area is just you know you, the kelp stacked right against the house like a meter deep um you know all the amphipods and isopods just running into the house it's it like in the zone um, they've now had to move that house onto a sort of platform because it was just getting broken to pieces. The waves would break around the whole house, you know, around, around the back as well. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was incredible as a child. You literally, I mean, I was like sleeping in the intertidal zone uh, with the roar of that Atlantic Ocean right there. So it, it just, and every day, all I would do is go onto that shore and look in the rock pools and you know, uh, interact with the animals. And I started diving when I was three years old, sort of hanging onto my dad's back. Um, but I stopped from, from 
you know, when I could walk, I was just in the intertidal. I was some reason just fascinated by it. I mean, it was so beautiful. Why wouldn't a child be? It, it's, a, it's a shame how few people have the opportunity to experience it. Like, you, you know, we... I'm walking around the city and you just see so many kids being pacified with iPads and iPods. And here you were getting pacified with isopods. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and a cool it's, one. <laughs> it's, uh, That's very clever. <laughs> you know what? It just came to me. Um, no, but, uh, but, but it, it really is. You, you talk quite a bit about how connected you feel underwater and how we are living in this age where we are just essentially everything in front of us isn't real and that it's fast paced media and tech that you're interacting with, but you're not really, you're not touching the, the real natural world. And when, when you think about your childhood and when you think about growing up in SA, you know, before the proliferation of, of TVs and, and, and the deep kind of tech that we have today, do you think that you had a, a happier, healthier childhood w- without all that technology? Oh, there's no question in my mind. I mean, I can feel the seductiveness uh, every day of that cell phone and all these things. It's so powerful and it's been designed so powerfully to pull us in, a, in actually quite a terrifying way. And I think people, um, they can feel that, but they don't know how to, you know, do anything against it. It, it, it is so powerful and so seductive. And even for myself, I'm, you know, lucky enough to be able to spend uh, quite a few hours in the wild. I, I, you know, turn all phones off, all that kind of thing, or or don't even take them. Certainly in the water, there's obviously none of that. And I can even feel how strong that pull is. Um, so when you haven't got that outlet, or you're just surrounded by these things, um, it is. Yeah, I mean, I, the funny thing I was thinking, like, I know a few older people. Um, who interact with nature and are in- incredible writers and uh, filmmakers and so on, who don't have cell phones and don't have all these devices. And their productivity and the way they can focus is incredible because it breaks our focus. And when you, I mean, if you need to track, if you need to get inside animals' lives, you need clear focus. You can't be being distracted. Um, or, or having that 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 sort of buzz of that that tech there in the back of your unconscious, it's 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 very destructive. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a there's such there's so I mean, I love my cell phone and it's an incredible tool for filming and even editing and so on and, and communicating with people all over the world. I'm talking to you now. I mean, I, I'm caught in that too. I feel I'm caught in that trap as well, but. At least I can get out for a large chunk of the week completely separate from that. Mm. And maybe that's why I can feel how strong and scary that seduction is. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of us grapple with. And uh, I I mean, I have to make an effort to like my family's Jewish, but I practice a bit of a digital Sabbath where just over the weekend, I just get rid of tech. And you you actually see your your happiness improve. You see your productivity, your focus, and then you see Monday yeah. morning how quickly it's yeah. it's back. It's 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 scary stuff. Craig, during the last um, podcast that we had, I was discussing uh, with Jane Goodall, and and 
she she speaks so highly of you. It's, it's really beautiful. And, you know, when we're discussing Jane's work and, and the Jane Goodall Institute, we're talking about the preservation of forests. And I'm speaking with you now about preserving an equally important yet wildly different type of forest. So what is the significance of these kelp forests and what's at stake if they're lost? Well, um, that's a big question. I mean, we're talking about, you know, here we call it the Great African Sea Forest. We've mm -hmm. given it a name to give it, you know, uh, a sense of place. But, you know, a quarter of the world's coastlines are covered uh, in kelp forests. Um, and they're these extraordinary places of biodiversity. I mean, I was, I was out the other day actually filming those amphipods um, that I grew to love as a child. And I'm, I'm there, um, you know, literally in the kelp mm -hmm. and moving the camera over. And I'm, I'm literally lying amongst millions of animals. And I looked down in my arm and my arm had disappeared because there were just thousands of animals on my arm. Uh, quite an, it's a, quite an incredible image. You see a sort of a vague shape of the human arm and there's a seething mass of these animals. It was so incredible to just be amongst this mass. And the kelp is attracting all these crustaceans. And then, of course, all the birds are coming for those crustaceans. And then all the bigger predators in the, in the sea and on the land are coming for the birds and then the fish. So what the kelp is doing is just creating enormous amount of food supply for a massive range of animals. And it, it inspires a tremendous amount of biodiversity. So these are kind of biodiversity hotspots, uh, biomass hotspots. I mean, our West Coast here, um, to give you some idea, um, in, in, in square meterage, it's 10 times more biomass than the Serengeti. That's what it can support. Uh, in terms of these filter feeders, in terms of um, these gastropods that feeding on the kelp. So it's just these incredible places where animals can come and mm. feed on this tremendous bounty. Um, and uh, many of the species are, are endemic, you know, only found, only found here or in, the, in other kelp forests. So, and they sequester carbon, they, they actually um, pull in pollutants they absorb them. Uh, they stop the you know waves smashing the coast and and so on. So they are like these jewels of the planet where there's a, a tremendous abundance of life. Now imagine losing that. I mean, biodiversity is as you know is the immune system of the planet. It's literally keeping us alive from second to second. It would be you know it, it, it's the ultimate horror when we start to lose places that hold so much biodiversity. We it would be um, you know, uh, it's extremely dangerous for the human species right. to even consider that. Yeah, I personally, until honestly researching you, had not thought about how what are how do these kelp forests regenerate, and what is their significance. And I think, unless people understand that and can feel that and interact with that, it's quite difficult to to want to preserve it. And so, out of curiosity, what is the life cycle of of a kelp forest? Like, um, where do well, the seeds yeah. come from? Um, well, they basically what they do is, it's quite incredible. They can only live on rocky substrate. Okay. So they put down a tiny spore and that grows into what's called a hold fast. It's like a root, but it's stuck on top of the rock. 
and then the stipe grows from that up and then there's a blade and the leaves lie on top of the water and the, the stipe is filled with with gas so it floats vertically um, and they don't have a long life cycle i mean they they live up to you know maximum of five years uh, uh, a plant but and 15% get ripped out by the great storms every year so it's it's just turning over so fast and that's why it's also providing so much food because you imagine like you know hundreds of tons get washed up on the shore and then as i say all these crustaceans and animals start feeding and that whole nutrient cycle is running so wow. it's this incredible way of feeding the environment uh, it it grows at 1 centimeter a day so it grows like so fast jeez uh, because there's so much nutrient, it, it only happens are in, in areas where there's upwelling. So you know, there, there's because of the southwest winds here and the turning of the earth, we get a tremendous nutrient upwelling from the deep, and mm. that's feeding these great forests. Just this unbelievable amount of nutrient coming from that deep cold water okay. and running this amazing cycle. Yeah. You know, I've heard you talk about this this ancient connection that humans have with the natural world. Um, how did you actually, how were you drawn into this connection and, and what motivated you to go spend time in, in the Kalahari do, tracking initially? I think it was, you know, my brother and myself, our childhoods were just in that intertidal, in that kelp forest. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, you know, just absolutely fascinated with it, with it. That was our, our main thing. So we were kind of looking around when we got uh, older and left school, who would be, who are the masters of nature? And it was so obvious, um, you know, that the San, especially in Southern Africa, um, were these kind of legendary naturalists. Um, so I was at first drawn to the rock art because it's hard as a young person to get sort of far up uh, into the Kalahari. I was drawn to the rock art, uh, absolutely mesmerized by it, um, did a, a book on the rock art. Um, and then slowly uh, began to venture further and further north and then was, was, was very, very fortunate to work with these incredible trackers. And it was just a you know, just a mind-blowing and very humbling experience to think at first that I kind of had a sense, a good sense for nature. I'd grown up my whole childhood. And then to meet these people who were inside of nature and to realize I knew nothing. It was it was quite terrifying, actually. And to know, oh, my goodness, what what would I have to do to even get close to that, to get to, like, level one? Of, of what they were doing and it was like frightening and I kind of put it out of my mind for a long time and then I, I got the chance to work with incredible anthropologists amazing archaeologists the whole coast here is uh, has extraordinary archaeology some of the, the very best in the world we've got the oldest art on earth uh, the oldest chemistry kit you know some of the oldest jewelry really the the you know we have the 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 very beginnings of art and science, you can see in the archaeology at 100,000 years old. It's right. quite remarkable. These, these collections of uh, geometric uh, carvings, it's, 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 it's absolutely mind-blowing when you, when you understand the significance of it because these are the, the first books and the first computers or at least the precursors of that. Um, so 
all this, you know, starts getting you very, very interested in what is this strange creature uh, that is the human being? What? Uh, where do we come from? How old are we? You know, we 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 basically made in Africa. We're three hundred thousand years old, and most of our time, as you know, we've spent here in Africa. We we sculptured in this extraordinary environment. And what does that do to us today? Uh, in, in the in the time of today, how does that? Is there a connection? And the more and more I track and go into nature, and the more I've learned from indigenous people, the more I realize that these are incredible tools for navigating this very difficult place we find ourselves in now. You know, you said something interesting, uh, which I've never heard before, but you said the, these tracks are the first books and first computers. And, you know, when we think about literacy and when we think about the first reading, it wasn't wasn't reading paper books. Or it wasn't even reading cuneiform, right? That's 5,000 years old. That Our earliest reading is reading the stars, reading animal tracks. It, it's it's essentially that pictography and deriving meaning from it. And it, it's interesting how in in today's civilization, we, you know, if, if you're if you're not literate in, in Western standards, just how, how backwards you are, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yet it sounds like when you were with the sand people, you realized how illiterate you were in terms of the language and the the books that they were reading i was the i was totally i was very illiterate in the oldest language on earth which you described so beautifully you know, and that was such a shock and as you know i mean it takes like 20 years to become a good a really good master tracker it, it, you know it takes i don't know 3 or 4 years to fly a jumbo jet it, this is something that's very complex and very difficult uh, to master um, you know, yet every uh, Stone Age person would have to have been literate uh, yeah. by, you know, uh, the age of 20. Otherwise, they, you know, just wouldn't survive. Um, so it's just such a, it's such a key thing to being human. And the, the, the thing is, what I was saying earlier, I was trying to say was, absolutely, I agree with you. Tracking and this identification of this language is the first reading. But what was so significant about the caves here is at a, and this is like, you know, 200,000 years probably of tracking. Mm. Then you get to 100,000 years and something happens which you don't quite understand, where for the very first time, humans take a sign, a symbol that's inside the human mind. They take it out of the mind and they carve it onto a piece of ochre. And that's a, probably the greatest like step that has be, ever been taken in the history of our species, not going to the moon or anything like that. That massive jump to put that representation outside the mind onto a piece of ochre. That's this giant leap in consciousness. Mm. And that happens right here on the coast, you know, right on this, this, the southern coast of Africa. Uh, and then, of course, everything changes because everything, our whole digital age relies on that step having been taken. That leap forward. Mm. I've never thought about it that way. Wow. For better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. Have you, um, are, are you familiar with a, a book called Stone Age Economics? Uh, by not. Marshall Salins. He, uh, you, I think you'll find him interesting. He, uh, essentially a sociologist, goes to live with, in, in the Kalahari 
He's there for about six months. And he writes a thesis on his learnings. And he ends up concluding, he, he draws a comparison between, I, I don't know which people it was in the Kalahari, but uh, um, yeah, very, very rural hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari. And ends up saying that they lead healthier, happier lives than the average British doctor. They spend more time with their family. They have more sex. They spend more time with their kids. And uh, apart from, you know, the capitalist ideologies that we're all kind of instilled with, he says, putting all that aside, these are happier, healthier people. And I, I remember reading this book in, in my undergrad learning, like first year economics, and it completely shifted my worldview on what we think about as a success. But I'm wondering from your time with the San people, were, were there comparable learnings or what, what was your experience like in, in living with them? Um, you know, I'd be interested to know when that book was written because the the the, the problem with early nineties, so, right? Yeah, um, the the horror um, that indigenous people have to deal with. You know, the the, the, the San have um, experienced a kind of genocide uh, on on them for you know a long time so they're carrying that trauma and so many indigenous people around the world are carrying that terrifying trauma of the that you know colonial weight that's come and just crushed their their culture so uh it's quite hard you see what my experience was you know when we were out tracking it was just this unbelievable um ecstatic flow of wonder that I was experiencing and watching them, you know, just dialing into the wild uh, was, was just, you know, even now when I, when I'm talking about it, the, the hairs stand up on my arms and neck. Um, and then going back to the village and the, the, the tremendous, you know, poverty and that, that horror of um, what they've had to endure uh, from the, the, from the outside world. So it wasn't, um, but I think if you had to go pre-colonial, mm. um, you'd have a totally different uh, sense. And I can only extrapolate a tiny bit from that. From my time hunting in the wild, completely free with these incredible trackers, my you know few moments of grace in the wild here after years and years of of tracking underwater and, and swimming in the wild, and then putting all the archaeology, what I was telling you about, that, that's what I put a lot of focus on, trying to understand what life was like 50,000 years, 100,000 years ago, and seeing the, what the, in the archaeology the sense of what it might be like to be a, a, you know, a wild human. You definitely get the sense... Um, that part of their lives was absolutely almost ecstatic. Each moment was ecstatic. And at the same time, very, very hard. No comforts, no, you know, nice, warm, comfy beds and medical treatments and this kind of thing. Sometimes face to face with, you know, early death uh, with children, this kind of thing. So it's not... Um, 
it's not just just completely incredible, wonderful, ecstatic existence where everything I think is you know far better than the British doctor, as you say. Um, yes. But but it, there's there's a certain um, I can say I've met um, three people um, from the Kalahari who about twenty years or more of their lives were lived fully wild. And I've noticed when I'm near them, there's something different about these people. There, there's this incredible aliveness. Um, and it almost feels like a kind of electrical electricity. You know, you feel so alive. Um, but of course, they've then experienced some of the horror after that. So it, it's it, it's dialed down. But I, I can you imagine, Aaron, what it would be like to walk beside a person 50,000 years ago who has lived their entire life wild, just dialed into nature in a way that we can hardly imagine? It's hard to actually imagine what they might have seen. You know, they might have seen 50 million springbok on the move. They might have seen them coming to the coast and quarter of a million animals being pushed by that great herd into the water and thousands of sharks feeding on that mass of springbok. This is the sort of things they would have seen whales washing up and huge prides of lion feeding on whales on the beach and, and, and animals to the horizon, you know, the whole earth shaking from the animals' hooves, the, the whole ocean boiling, the sky completely blocked out, almost black by birds. Can you imagine living in that bounty your whole life? Um, in that small group of people surviving as a tiny, tiny in the numbers on this vast landscape with this kind of animal numbers. Well, how does that affect the psyche? Uh, uh, we, we, we can't even imagine, but you can get a sense of the, <laughs> yeah. the, the majesty of it. I mean, you know, um, and, and the hardness as well. You know, so you you you're balancing out that as well, and you're quite a small group. Maybe it's maybe hard to find partners there. At that stage in the world, there are probably seven to ten thousand people in the whole world, all in Africa. You know, there's this tiny, tiny human yeah. population, this giant animal population. So what what must it have been like? I mean, it's just it just blows my mind even to think about. Well, you just blew my mind thinking about it. But, but it, it's obviously something you think a lot about. I mean, on, on the first thing you see on the Sea Change uh, Project website is remember you are wild. So clearly, this is, this is something you spend a lot of time thinking about. What, what is the hope? What, what, are you, what are you trying or what are you instilling us with, with that statement? There's a number of things, Aaron. When you're down there in that wild kelp forest, in that cold, and all the chemicals in your brain are you know, being turned on, and you're face-to-face -face with these incredible animals, and you're looking into that cephalopod eye, and it's looking back at you, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary because you don't feel completely separate from the wild in just these tiny moments of grace. Mm. And then you sense, you actually feel it for a moment that every one of us is born wild, a totally wild creature being born and then into the strange alien world, where we, which is trying to separate us the whole time from the mother, from our origins. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having gone through all this and had this 
wonderful teaching from these archaeologists about our deep past, having been taught by these extraordinary trackers, sound trackers in the Kalahari, and then experiencing these small moments of, of grace in the underwater forest. You really get a sense that that wildness is one of the most precious things you can possibly have on this planet. <laughs> and so you go and you seek that and you try to tell in your best sort of clumsy way stories about what that's like. Um, because if people, I think, are connected to the wild and have this, which so many people have this deep love mm. for our our wildness, for the, the, the animals, the plants, that the wild biodiversity that's literally the the you know the intelligence that is is keeping us all alive the more we fall in love with that the more chance we have to truly you know change our behavior to protect it it's a simple very simple cliche in a way um so that's the idea of of the wildness is the nutrient that we need to survive on a psychological mental and physical level I couldn't agree with you more, and 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 I, I love the the statement so so dearly. Something that that struck me the first time that I saw it on on the site, and that our team actually spent some time discussing, and and it impacted us, was we we talk about how so many of the indigenous communities they are so you know they've been talking about environmental preservation since day one, and you know seven decades later, the rest of the world is slowly waking up, slowly starting to understand that these guys knew all along. And I feel like we teaching our kids in the 21st century to learn how to think, to empathize with nature so that they can hopefully recycle and so that they can hopefully protect the planet. Instead of instilling in them an understanding that you are the planet, that you are, you come from here, yeah. you are wild and you depend on, on this. And, and so for us, we, we spoke about just how much it meant to us thinking about us as these, these wild creatures, as opposed to, a, you know, a, a very Huxleyan, very anti-animal, like just a, a different race that never came from it. Um, so thank you, thank you for for it. It's it's really beautiful. It's quite it's wonderful talking to you because I can under, I can feel your deep passion and um, understanding of this. It's it's so much easier to to try and express it. It's hard to express these things are so complex. You know, it's not easy. Yeah, no, I hear you. I appreciate you saying that. So I, I mean, the place that I saw this uh, this incredible statement is on on the CE Project website. And I, so I wasn't aware that the Sea Project has, has been around since 2012, long before my octopus teacher. And what, what events inspired you to, to co-found it with, um, with Ross in, in 2012? I think it was just, uh, you know, I'd done 25 films with my brother in you know, many, many African countries. We'd worked very, very hard for all those years. Um, and I'd always that encounter, you know, those that that time we spent with those trackers, it haunted me for so long, Aaron. And I I knew I had to get under the skin of nature. I had to be inside of nature. I wasn't gonna be happy. So I stopped everything. Um, stopped and all I did 
was just use my little savings to you know hunker down, spend almost nothing, and just every day immerse in that in this wild space here. And I specifically chose the wild African sea forest of my childhood because I'd had you know ten good years of a child getting to know it. So I needed maybe another ten to try and get inside it. And I just started going every day and more and more and more and more. And then suddenly, you know, you start to feel that separateness breaking down. Not all the time. Uh, and then you 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 start to breathe a sigh of relief because you can feel your sort of part of your this type of humanity returning to your 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 soul. Um, or anyway, for me, um, and. The tracking played a big uh, part of that because how do you penetrate? How do you get inside these these animals' lives? It's not uh, at at first it seems impossible, but the more you do it, and it's not a, it doesn't require a lot of talent or anything. It just requires consistency and just pitching up every day and just watching and watching, keeping still, watching, watching, watching. Nothing happening for weeks, and suddenly there's a breakthrough, and then another breakthrough, and oh my god. You know, after a few years, you're inside this animal's life, and you've got a real sense for what it's going to do, and and how it's thinking, um, and it, it's just the most. It just lights you up in a way where I've certainly never been lit lit up before. I've dived with, you know, some of the biggest, most charismatic animals on this planet: crocodiles, huge sharks. You know, um, we've we've filmed big cats and interacted with them physically. But that, I promise you, a tiny little gastropod, you get inside that animal's life. And for me, it just lights me up uh, a thousand times more because suddenly I'm not there witnessing nature and looking at it. I'm feeling a little bit a part of it. And that's what you're talking about. That, that wildness is, is so valuable. I, I distinctly remember, so dad having studied marine biology, mom just absolutely loving nature. We used to spend a lot of our time, uh, so after my folks immigrated uh, with me to, to Vancouver from SA, we'd spend a lot of time catching frogs. And my favorite frog to catch was a Pacific green tree frog. And I have the, not to the depth that, that of anything that you've discussed or experienced, because I've just never spent that type of time. But, you know, four solid hours, a few times a week on the side of a ditch, watching these tree frogs and and actually being able to know where it's going to go see a muskrat coming down and knowing okay in you know three meters it's going to startle this guy i i know what you're talking about just being so deeply engrossed in that and and you're you're predicting what's going to happen and then it's coming true and it's validating your assumptions and and you're becoming more confident in what you're how how you think about it exactly exactly yeah so you have this experience. You're living by the you're, you're living by the forest. You you decide to really hunker down, swim every day, and at some point you decide that these kelp forests they need to be protected. And so, in in 2012, you and and Ross, what was the first step? What were you guys? What were you looking to do? Yeah, we just wanted to you know try and start a, a small NGO. Um, and start to tell the stories um, of this place that we'd fallen in love with. Um, and, you know, at first, you know, we, not many people were interested in talking to us and so on. But through this strange set of circumstances, we had this dream to 
put the great African sea forest on the global map, and we thought it would take, you know, decades. And then by the strange miracle, this film came along, and then suddenly there it was. On the, you know, everybody in the world was, not everybody, but a, a, a lot of people were actually experiencing the sea forest and realized how precious it was. Um, and then we realized the power of storytelling and how storytelling shapes behavior, shapes uh, our culture. And as you said, you know, people then, having seen the film and read our book, in, in certainly in Cape Town, there was this enormous interest in families taking children and starting to nurture kids like you were, you know, nurtured by your parents. You, you, I can feel uh, how much you got out of that, uh, that those frogs. And personally, I also love amphibians. I, I'm, I'm mad about frogs. Um, so I'm mad about all of nature, actually. I mean, spiders, insects, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, animals. And because I've now got a bit of a method and a, um, a sense for it, I can go into an environment that I um, don't know well and quite quickly, within, say, a month, slip under the skin of wild nature. And it's the most incredible experience. And I've recently tried that on a tropical island that I didn't know the environment at all. And, you know, slipped into the secret lives of these moray eels, which is just, you know, just immediately it, it bonds you with that place in a way that is impossible to get otherwise. It's, you can, you, your, your, your soul is always attached to the place, but it's through the animals. And obviously you could use plants, amphibians, insects. It doesn't matter. You could do it in a city yeah. if you could connect with the trees or the birds. It, it doesn't matter. Um, but it's that for me, it's that sense of you just feel you're underneath the skin. Now you've got, like you said, you you got that muskrat and that that frog, and you kind of know the the, the architecture of the of the of what's happening inside of wild nature, and it's very very uh, inspiring. So you you call it under the skin, and whenever I go hiking or camping, and I spend a lot of time outdoors, I'll always make an effort to hike far away from everyone else and just to sit down and initially there's there's nothing and within two minutes there's a few creepy crawlies and the birds come back and within five ten minutes you are you're, you're what what i think you are is under the skin is is that the is that when you're under the skin or is it is it much later uh in my experience, it's much later. So what, okay. what you're doing is a very classic thing, which is very powerful, and that's just being still in nature. Mm. I spend a lot of my early time just floating absolutely still in the kelp forest, doing nothing. And as you say, all the birds, all the animals, underwater animals, they, you know, they, they don't respond to movement and, and pressure waves. You've got to you know, calm all that down. And then you start to you know, you sense all the animals around you. When I'm talking about being under the skin, I mean when you can actually feel um, the kind of heartbeat of that animal or group of animals you're studying, you get a sense for their lives, how hard they are in some cases, um, how they survive, what they're eating, where they're moving, what are the prey, what are the predators, their tiny little marks they make when they move. And it doesn't happen that often, Aaron. I mean, I, I'm not like, you know, I'm nowhere near um, as good a tracker as these teachers I had in the Kalahari. Mm. You can't beat an entire lifetime and an accumulated knowledge 
of all your elders passing that to you. That's the bigger, big factor here. I mean, imagine when you're that early human, not only are you living in this wild place, but you've got, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of generations of accumulated knowledge being passed directly to you. So you've got this massive jump ahead. We've got science, which is pretty amazing in some ways to understand nature, but it can never uh, come up against that every day, you know, hundreds of generations of face to face with wild nature. I mean, it yeah. does not compare. Um, so, you know, this is the thing we, we're trying to learn here uh, with scraps, but you get these moments, these incredible moments of grace where suddenly you feel you're inside these animals' wild lives. Um, and the whole body starts to come alive, you know. Um, and, and for a moment, you get that sense of their wildness and it reflects inside and, and wakes up your own wildness, which is just, you know, it's, it's so exciting. And then it all goes away and you're back in this, you know, terrifying <laughs> tech-dominated world and you, 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 you feel all tame and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, you don't know what to do with yourself. And you're just craving that wildness mm. and that cold and that giant sea and those incredible animals and that massive underwater three-dimensional forest. And it just pulls you back, you know, and the, and the, the, the cold and everything is also in, sometimes intimidating. And even, you know, the, the sheer wildness of the water and, uh, is, can be intimidating. So it also pushes you a bit. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, you go out and you... You try to get under the skin and it's so difficult. Nothing's happening. You know, it, it almost like nature's this, this weird mirror. I don't know if you've ever had that where sometimes you're in this bad space, you haven't slept or you've got too many pressures and it's just pieces of plastic or dead animals floating. And, you know, what the hell's going on here? What's this crazy mirror that I'm seeing? And then occasionally you just, you know, you have these, these special times and you slip underneath and wherever you look, you can read um you know this 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 wild language this oldest language on earth is just pouring into your soul and it's it's um you kind of know why you're alive you know why why you're here and then it then it all goes away again <laughs> you you spoke about that in in the in my octopus teacher and you talk about learning a lot from her and from from that experience and i, I didn't understand it when when i i didn't understand understand the depth that it meant until right now the film is obviously, you know, so much about her, but of course you're interacting with her predators, so many of the other animals, you're building relationships with these giant clingfish, with these amphipods, with otters, with seals, with sharks, you know, bigger sharks. It's not just, you know, the film, you can only, you know, you can push in, you know, what's it, 80 minutes, and you've had, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of these incredible interactions so it only shows a tiny essence of of the experience and um you know also it doesn't show too much of the the hard times when you're struggling or the incredibly boredom just sitting and nothing's happening so it's it's a it's just a it's just a tiny slice what can our audience do right now to support sea change project what are the what are some of the things that we can do to to tangibly make an impact on our, the kelp forests and 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 also to support your mission and vision? I mean, what just comes to mind is wherever people are in the world, I think they have some kind of uh, influence over the group of people around them, their families, that kind of thing. 
And I think what, what challenge we're facing, one of the main challenges is this, you know, collapse of biodiversity. This is the thing that's keeping us all alive. And it, it, it's, it would be extraordinary if people could just think, well, what could I do in my little sphere of influence um, to care for the biodiversity in my little patch and my influence? Because that supports all of us. There's no better thing. So you could think of like, if you're in a certain business, what could you do to help the biodiversity? If you, even a child, how could you influence your family or your mother or father or your, your, your siblings? Because this is the essence. This is literally the, the, the life force that is invigorating us. And, you know, I could think of nothing better than just trying to understand it a bit and then trying to care for it in your small or big way, whatever it is. That would be, I mean, this is what we're trying to do is tell stories to connect people with nature so that people then start caring about it. So whatever it's possible to do in um, your little place, big place, ocean, mountain, even city, doesn't matter. We have to allow nature to to, to move amongst us, even in our urban areas, we've got to do everything. I've just been in our waterfront here where, you know, the, the otters are actually now having to survive in these sort of built up urban canals. And there's an amazing person who's trying to facilitate and make it possible for them to do that. And there's a lot of support, but a lot of big business actually want, you know, they don't want that hassle. And that's the kind of thing where, we need, especially predators, bigger animals are critical, so critical. All the animals are critical, the plants, everything. The, 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 the you know, pollution's obviously a major problem. Anything you can do to support the wild nature, the biodiversity of animals and plants that run this planet, that would be, that would be my, uh, that would be the greatest gift. Once again, I'm reminded of of Jane Goodall, who who talks about you know she gets hope by, like or when we're struggling to find hope, by uh, thinking globally but acting locally and just getting started yeah. and, and and just just doing tiniest bit, tiniest little bit, and the addictive you know, nature uh, once once you get started, and and to tell stories about nature is also so yes. powerful because we know you don't change behavior because of stats or you know, figures, it's emotion and, and your, your, your feeling. And that, that, it, that would be the most, you know, uh, amazing thing is just to start telling those wild stories again. You know, you're talking about how stats don't really move people, but you do have one stat which really speaks to me. And that's uh, on, on your site, this idea that 30, 38% of, of kelp forests have shown to be in decline over the last few decades. So what what is is Sea Change Project? I understand amazing storytelling. Is there anything else that that you guys are are working on that excites you and that our audience or that I personally could could do to to support that work? Yeah, I mean we we're working on a wonderful project and a number of wonderful projects, but the one that I'm most involved with at the moment um, is with our. Um, science uh, uh, department uh, and that's headed up by Dr. Janis Lanskov who's a marine biologist that I've worked with for many years and we've decided to study 
with the help of our professor, Charles Griffiths, who's this wonderful uh, prof who's nurtured us for many years. We are looking at 1,001 animals in the kelp forest. Um, and we're trying to get under their skins, get to know their behavior and bring their stories to life. Because <laughs> if we can show how incredible this place is with the science and with the storytelling. So the, 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 the stats and the science is very, very important as well. But by itself, it, it can do certain things. But if you combine that with powerful storytelling, so we're taking our uh, amazing science and we're putting it together with storytelling. We're working with um, this wonderful Save Our Seas Foundation who's supporting this project, who've done amazing shark conservation around the world. And we're getting those stories slowly out into people's minds and into the, you know, the politicians, the decision makers in South Africa, so they can see and the rest of the world, because it's a microcosm for the, the, mm. the, the rest of the kelp forest, how extraordinary the place is, how extraordinary each one of these animals' lives are. And then the desire and the, you know, when we put out these, these volumes and these incredible stories, it's kind of evidence for a strong motivation to protect and look, look after. And that's our job. We've tried before to also go into meetings and influence governments and everything. That doesn't work. We have to stay with the wild and stay connected to the wild so that we can tell her stories. If we get too distracted by all these other things, we lose that, uh, that, that power and that, that energy. So we've realized uh, we're knocking our heads a lot. We've just got to stay with the wild, stay connected. And it's not easy with all the distractions and just keep those stories flowing because that is the, that's the best thing we can do in our tiny little patch. And it's our, it's our capacity, which is sometimes I feel not that much, but we just, that's our passion as well. So we can keep going with that energy. Does it make sense? It makes so much sense. And, and I'll tell you, I don't know anyone else that is working in this particular niche and, and just how critically important I think that this niche is. And, and the reason that I say that is I've got a lot of friends who hate crows and, and, and all kind of corvid type birds. Why I like crows is that 10 years ago, my dad found one that was three weeks old. Long story short, after spoon feeding it for you know, four months, uh, we, we had him for 18 months. He became a big part of our family. Wow. And to this day, you know, my, my relationship with crows has fundamentally changed. I mean, this crow used to literally come mountain biking with us, would fly through the forest. Wow. When Amazing. we'd lose him in the forest, he'd meet us at home. And if he didn't, and if we didn't lose him in the forest, he'd come back in the car and he would sit on the steering wheel while either myself or my dad drove. Amazing. The, but the point is, I don't know, I, I haven't spoken to another person who is so passionate about understanding animals so deeply and telling those stories. And I think for humans to really give a shit, it, it's, it's not just a pretty picture. It's understanding the complexity, yeah. the enormity. And my, my mind was blown just listening to you talk about it because I don't know of another organization or person who's focused on that, on that depth and intersection. So it's, it's exciting stuff. Thank you. And I'm also trying to you know, work with a few people who are very passionate about this tracking and also pass the knowledge to them um, so that they then can spread, spread that and have this influence. 
And funny enough, I mean, I love corvids as well. I use the white neck ravens to track otters. Oh, wow. um, Yeah, uh, because they're always looking for scraps from the otter kills. Um, and I, funny enough, had a, a fascinating experience years ago with a pied crow, similar to yours in a way. I don't know if you can even remember from the great dance when that animal was flying with the springbok. I know, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it allowed us to fly a camera next to it and all sorts of things. So I also love those corvids, especially the ravens. Um, and I know there can be a problem in certain parts of the world, but um, they're, they're highly intelligent birds. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me today and for, for sharing your, your passion and purpose. And it's truly inspired me personally. And I know that it's going to impact our audience in, in many ways. Um, you know, if anyone's listening and wants to keep up to date, uh, support Sea Change Project or anything else, what's the best place for them to visit? And what would you like for them to, to kind of take away? Uh, yeah, first of all, Aaron, it's just been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And strangely enough, I, I feel, you know, we've connected very quickly in a short time talking about these things we're both so passionate about. So I think, but the uh, one good resource if people are interested to go in a little bit deeper is our book that's come out quite recently uh, in America and other parts of the world called Underwater Wild. Um, and that um, you know, follows the, the story of sea change, uh, follows uh, Ross and our uh, adventures together and, and some of these incredible animals that we've met uh, in the kelp forest. Um, I am working on a new book, um, trying to get all the stories from the last few years and the deeper tracking um, into one volume, but that's only gonna be available in a year or so with, with HarperCollins um, who I'm working with. Um, so, and I'm, I'm also trying to amass a, a, a group of short films that will go along with the book um, that, I, trying to to capture this essence of what we talked about today the sea change project we've got this amazing team of storytellers scientists um, and conservation journalists who are just absolutely dedicated to this place and getting these stories out um, and it, it's a great privilege to you know work with all of them it's really uh, so inspiring for me so quite a lot of them are younger than me and a lot sharper than me in many ways um, so i'm very lucky to be working with them and working on this science project i'm talking about um, and lots of other uh, wonderful projects we're just really trying to bring these experiences and this wild nature um, to the world in a in a gentle and powerful way we've got a wonderful website as well you know sheetchangeproject.com um and there, there's kids can use the film to use in the classroom and study there's all mm -hmm. that uh, freely available um which the team have created so um you know there's, there's there's quite a lot of material that people can delve into fantastic craig thank you you know you talk about the work that you're you're trying to do and I appreciate the humility, but you're doing it. You're bringing it to the forefront. And I, I never in my wildest dreams did I realize the, the depth of, of work that, that you're doing to, to change our perception of, of nature and, until this conversation. And 
I, I personally feel so grateful to have been able to to learn this directly from you. It's it's all inspiring stuff, and I look forward to speeking soon. Truly, thank you. Awesome meeting you, and uh, a great surprise and pleasure. What a blessing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Impact in the 21st Century by Simbi Foundation. We hope you found listening to it as meaningful as we did. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to us on whichever platform you're listening from and leave us a review or a comment to let us know your favorite moment. Or feel free to recommend a guest for future episodes. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning material, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to entire schools and communities. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to visit simbifoundation.org. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and we look forward to bringing you more stories of positive impact in the next episode.